Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bench Units podcast. Uh, I'm James. I'm joined as always by Mark. Never heard of him. Mark, say hello. Good and to be here. we have a guest. This is probably the first guest of any consequence that's asked to come on the podcast. Uh, we are joined by Yannick Blair. How's it going, man? What's up, boys? Uh, yeah, cheers for having me on. Cheers for um, you say accepting my request. Yeah, you, you don't have to thank us, man. This is um. You're basically the first guest who's not like one of our friends or somebody we play with, played with or play with currently. You're the first person that neither of us really know personally that we've managed to rope in. And like we said before yeah. we hit record, you did most of the work, so we appreciate that. <laughs> I'm a little bit offended that you don't consider me to be at least James's friend. I thought I was well and truly in there. I would have put myself in his MySpace yeah. top friends. Oh, I, I, I'd <laughs> love to start calling us friends. If you're telling me live on like a recorded thing that we've crossed over that we can call each other friends, I will accept that with open arms. We just like uh, played each other once and then the next time it was like, oh, how's it going, man? Cool. Yeah, no, that's, what would, that's, what, that's what Wood Basketball does, mate. Just brings people together. <laughs> I think if it helps, yeah. man, I've, I've got several WhatsApp messages that if you were to read them all, like in order it very much angles at the fact that james hopes you're his friend because he's like hey this guy's so cool i can't wait to talk to him he's got like a schoolboy <laughs> crush on you to some extent i probably shouldn't tell you that and, so early in the episode it's going to make a weird dynamic and you've come right, on the video know. call with no top on so yeah you, here we go you're as I'll, comfortable I'll as anyone on. with yeah i'll blend that on multiple factors one um as soon as i hit australian soil again the amount of clothes i wear drops dramatically into i'm in hotel <laughs> quarantine haven't seen anyone other than my teammate and quarantine mate bill latham for 14 days so i haven't actually worn a shirt in two weeks or socks or shoes i've basically just worn shorts and um yeah just changing my underwear every day is the only change to my uh to my outfit since i got here so. <laughs> you're living the dream it is actually i didn't know you were in with- the dream <laughs> yeah not having to wear a shirt that's like richard uh Norche's thing um the second he gets into his own apartment he's like i'm not wearing a t-shirt this is my own place if you don't like it you very much don't have to be here like because he's got this nice like he's got this nice balcony with a barbecue and grass and chairs and he's like he's just well set up to so the second and it's like get in hang his keys up t-shirt off like it's great yeah the check i can appreciate that Appreciate that lifestyle, and certainly, mainly during the Australian summer for about six months of the year, we would generally not wear a t-shirt, or, and a lot of the times not wear pants either for about yeah, about six months straight. So, especially growing up on a farm, that was something that minimal clothing during the during the hotter months. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll have to we'll have to have a um, a grew up on a on a farm catch up at some point, Yannick. I imagine the Australian farms are slightly different to the um, middle of nowhere in the chilly north of England that I grew up, but probably slightly bigger but yeah aside from yeah. that um other than that probably some similarities there yeah um with, to which point i have normally told james's guests invited that it's nice to meet them at this point but i feel like we hit the ground running on this one so it's great to meet you man i'm mark thank you for Likewise. coming on and yeah shall we get to stuff because james has gone to all the trouble of putting a rundown together so i'd hate to deprive him let's do it let's yeah do it. so First question I ask everyone, uh, I'll ask you the same. How did you get involved in wheelchair basketball? What's your what's your story for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, so as I mentioned briefly before, I grew up on a farm uh, in more or less the middle of nowhere. And 
about 15 kilometres outside of a small town, which is about three and a half hours from Melbourne, the state of Victoria. Um, had a pretty typical upbringing on the, as, a, as far as, a, I guess, a rural kid in, uh, in regional Victoria or regional Australia goes. So I have two brothers, grew up on a farm in the yeah, middle of nowhere, lived a pretty active lifestyle, played a lot of sports. And then outside of that, on my free time, we just spent a lot of time on the farm, either either playing with my brothers or um, working whenever we were obliged to do so, which was basically whenever we didn't have anything to do, we were put to work for, you know, cheap child labour obviously gets uh, <laughs> better than paying wages. So, um, yes. but on, and on a, I think it was a Sunday, March 21st, I believe, I'd spent the day working um, with one of my mates. We'd just been, I think, picking weeds in one of the paddocks. Uh, I was driving my grandfather's ute at 12 years of age. And my ute is an Australian term for a farm vehicle. I think it's short for utility truck. I think it's the origin. Um, but that's what we call like a, a vehicle, um, a car basically with a flat tray. I'm not sure what you guys call them. In the States, they call them a truck. Yeah. I think in the UK. Yeah. In the UK, they may not even exist. But um, yeah, so we'd been working during the day. I'd come back to the farmhouse in the afternoon and the intention was to go inside and pretty much call it a day. My brother had just driven past the farm. He was in his vehicle, his car. Uh, he was 13 at the time. With one of his mates, I'd been doing the same. And as he was driving past, we, I just got out of the car. He challenged me to a race from one side of a paddock to the other and back. Uh, and obviously being a year younger than, than my older brother, that sort of a challenge wasn't something I was going to turn down. So I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, why wouldn't I race you <laughs> from one side of a paddock to another in my granddad's suit being 12 and I think I'd been driving for maybe a year and probably not the most experienced driver um so we went to the paddock got in we were raising his car was an automatic and he was a year older and a year more experienced um driver so we got to about halfway across the paddock um and I'd realized I was well and truly outmatched he was a long ways in front of me so I just decided to turn around and go back and I didn't have my seatbelt on when I turned and the, the window was down um, in the ute. So as I turned, it's going a bit too fast. Uh, the ute rolled. I was thrown outside of the window as it rolled. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. I can't. Well, I remember seeing black and black then or light then dark, light then dark. And then nah, nothing for a week. I woke up a week later after having been in a coma um, my older brother saw it happen in the rear vision mirror as he was driving away. So it came back uh, through all the dust and the, 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 which I think it ended up back on its wheels. Um, my friend, I slid out the, the driver's side window or flew out the driver's side window. He slid across from the passenger seat and ended up in the driver's seat um, and was fine. Just had some in, an injury to his knee, which, which um, was not permanent, so he's all good. Um, and then my brother found me. I was on the ground with um, blood coming out of my mouth because I broke my back, severed my spinal cord, um, broke my right arm, had my left arm, was already broken from a, a sick BMX accident a couple of weeks earlier. So, um, Sorry, and, that's a terrible thing to laugh at. <laughs> you described it, it, it was sick. I think it's fair game. It was super sick, yeah. In one of those, you know, like a dried out old river. I was doing some BMX tricks and stacked it and broke my left arm. So that was a couple of weeks earlier and then broke my right arm in the accident and punctured my lungs. Set, um, my lungs collapsed in the accident, which was 
I guess the reason why when my brother found me, I had a lot of blood coming out of my mouth and I was screaming, can't feel my legs, that sort of that sort of stuff. So he went up to the farmhouse, got my dad who came down. Um, he realized obviously when he saw blood coming out of my mouth, that it was pretty serious. There was some internal injuries and obviously time was of the essence. So he threw me in the back of his or in his, um, his vehicle, his van, drove me into Horsham, which is the, the nearest town. Um, which I'm very proud of being a member of, a citizen of. Um, and from there, I was airlifted to Melbourne. Uh, they put me in a coma somewhere along the way and put in a, a tracheotomy, which is the like a ventilator, I guess, for people that have had um, lung injuries, which I had one. So I woke up from the coma after that week, um, couldn't breathe unassisted. Like I had the tracheotomy in and that, I mean, you also can't talk or eat. So I was, um, yeah, had that for about a month during which time I couldn't, had to communicate everything writing on a whiteboard, which was pretty grim, especially for my, and not having either, like I was double casted <laughs> at the right and left arm in cast. And I was actually handcuffed to the the bed when I woke up because during the, the month or the week that I was in the coma, um, I kept, before they cast me, I kept pulling out the, the tracheotomy, which is the tube which they operate. If For those who don't know, they operate on you just below your Adam's apple and put a tube in directly into your throat or your esophagus, I guess it would be at that point, and then into your lungs, and then it obviously breathes for you. So I kept pulling that out because it's obviously something that would be rather uncomfortable, um, which was not ideal for my um, health. So <laughs> they handcuffed me to the bed so that I couldn't do that whilst I was in a coma. So it was a bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a situation when I woke up. like, what am I, what's going on here? Um, but, yeah, and obviously – that kind of thing like I woke up knew that um I couldn't walk or that couldn't feel my legs or that I wasn't gonna be able to walk again didn't need to be told although they did tell me um just good for clarity's sake but um but yeah I was just I guess at that moment the first thing that I said or wrote on the whiteboard was um I was super concerned that my grandfather would be pissed off at me would be angry because I um destroyed his ute which um, <laughs> obviously he in the grand scheme of things is he wasn't too stressed about he got a new one and um obviously his grandson's health is is more important to him than a than a farm vehicle. But being a twelve year old boy, that was sort of the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, oh, I'm in big trouble here. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that was that. Um, spent a couple of months in the in hospital. Went from I see the intensive care unit to, to the kids ward, and then from there started the rehabilitation in the rehab center in Melbourne. And it was during those months of rehabilitation where I was introduced to wheelchair basketball, the, the rehab center um, has a, had a basketball court, which I think is pretty typical of rehab centers. And at that basketball court, the then members, Victorian based members of the Australian rollers, um, the primary one being Campbell message uh, were training for the 2004 Paralympics in Athens. So I was able to watch them train and, and interact with them and, they introduced me to a bunch of sports and wheelchair basketball was the one that most tickled my fancy. Um, and then luckily enough, I was able to watch the boys compete a little bit. I think at that point in time in Australia, at least they only showed per day during the Paralympics, a half an hour highlight of all the sports combined. So you might get to see five minutes of five or 10 minutes of wheelchair basketball. Um, the boys won silver. So they got a decent amount of screen time. So maybe a 10 minute slot, you know, uh, which compared to today is is night and day, but uh, sure. that was sort of where I was introduced to it and, and fell in love with it and, and set my sights on becoming a, 
a Paralympian and representing Australia, that was sort of, I had a really firm goal after that, which was really helpful for my, I guess, recovery and rehabilitation and, and what have you. Awesome, yeah. man. That's a hell of a story. Um, that rivals some of the, not quite as violent, but equally as gruesome as some of the stuff Richard told us about. I don't, don't mean yeah, to trivialize this in any so, way, but you were 100% driving your granddad's truck around with a broken left arm still, if you'd only broken it two weeks before. <laughs> so you were 12 yeah. years old, been driving since you were 11, apparently, and you were driving your granddad's truck with a broken arm already. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and racing at my older brother, yeah. who was obviously 13. And I mean, driving, the difference, my vehicle was a manual as well, which I think is where I was, uh, where I went, as, <laughs> went wrong because the, the gear changes when you're um, racing when you're 12 are pretty difficult. Um, I remember having a bit of a hard <laughs> time there. With a broken like, arm as well. Flipsy. Yeah. yeah. It's like I'm just not so smooth on the gear change. So, so something so about was, work, workmen blaming his tools in here, isn't it? Yeah, there definitely was, mate. I think just a better man won on the day, and unfortunately, um, I came I came off second best. So, um, yeah, well, no no excuses. I stick the mid up, and it should have been better. That's the but, most cookie cutter like F one podium interview of all time. Just from breaking it around to flipping, what do you call it, a farm, and <laughs> coming out and breaking your back, being like, ah, second best on the day, and at the gate. Yeah, that's that's bad. Bad. That's um, that's crazy, but it's, I mean, for me, it's really cool to hear the, um, you mentioned kind of the rehab center, having the basketball court involved, and that's kind of the club that me and James have both played for over the years in Sheffield. That's kind of where that all started and where they roped a lot of their players in from. So it's interesting to hear that that's kind of the model across the world, basically, and that's what got you into it as well. Yeah, and it, it's got a, like if you have a, uh, I guess a spinal cord injury in the state of Victoria, 99% chance you'll go to that rehab center and the amount of people that have um, like, and that's basically is a race as soon as you get. And usually after I had finished, I'm sure someone mentioned to someone when they saw me in there, like a 12 year old boy from a farming and like a athletic background, so to speak as athletic sure. you can be at 12. Um, but then when that happened, after I finished, I would get those messages. Like there's a, um, a squad member of one and a half who's playing in the, the Aussie team at the moment who may go to Tokyo or maybe unlucky as like a 13th man who had a motocross accident when he was 16, which was maybe almost say 10 years ago when I was in my late teens, early twenties. And they, they called me, he's from a farming town as well. And they said, look, there's a young guy who was pretty similar to you when you had your accident um, in here now, if you want to come in and have a chat to him. And blah, blah. so I did the same thing. I was able to repay that favor. And he's now um, yeah, heavily involved in wheelchair basketball. And he tells a similar story to, to me using me as the reference that I used as for Campbell message. He was the guy that sort of got me involved in. It's, I think it's super important when you're um, a young person or in any point in your life when you have a life-changing accident, but particularly when you're young um, and you don't really know what's out there and you can, you're can you shown by someone who's who's been through the same thing and has made the most of it and has turned it into a, you know, something positive and, and um, been successful afterwards. I think it's super important for, you, for people to see that. Um, and then you have that sort of a role model. And, yeah, I was stoked to be able to, I guess, pay it back and pay it forward. And, and then I'm sure in the future, in the future, Jeremy Tyndall is, is this other, the other guy's name. I'm sure 
in the future, he'll be able to do the same for other young guys that come through and have that life-changing accident um, and realise that it's not all over, that there's still so much you can do and, and yeah, so much that you can yeah. make of your life still. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, that's, think, that's really cool to say. I think, yeah, I think the thing about that is, like, as you say, that's such a special thing because that can kind of ripple out forever. Like, he can pass it on in 10 years and then another 10 years, that guy can pass it on and that's just kind of like think about the amount of people's lives that can change from just making like making sure that you kind of understand where you've come from and the steps that have been put in place for you to get where you are today in terms of someone having that chat like that's really important and I'm sure it's super hard to get that conversation right because I can imagine you're sitting in a hospital bed 12 years old and someone comes in and starts talking to you about wheelchair basketball and you've just kind of considered the sort of loss of you see your legs and all these different things mm-hmm. changing and different bits going in different directions. And you're thinking, I'm sure there's plenty of people that have that chat and get it wrong. You sit in the hospital bed being like, ah, would you piss off? Like, I'm just, kind of, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting to terms with this, yeah. but just leave uh, me to wallow and we'll sort it out later. Yeah. yeah I've had, it's, it's, go ahead. Sorry, go sorry, ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it is super important. And just, I guess, being, being real, being normal and, and just, just demonstrating, I guess, your life. And that's the, the thing that has a big impact on you is just seeing people that you don't have to do anything special. I guess it's just, just be you or just show people that life is still normal. Like it's just a, a different way of doing things. And then life, life carries on. And um, yeah, I think being coming from athletic backgrounds or this, this other kid was a sporting guy and, and being able to demonstrate that is important, but also for people that aren't into sports, being able to find that, their, their niche, their their um, their field, and yeah. realize that they can still be successful in any field. It doesn't have to be sports. It's just convenient for me that, that um, we were both sporting kids, but um, it certainly doesn't have to be that. But yeah, Working. awesome. Um, I think you've given us about as detailed of a rundown on your kind of journey up <laughs> as as we've heard from anyone. That's been really cool to listen yeah. to. Um, I think we're gonna jump. A little bit forward and go present day because you've obviously been in Bilbao for a couple of years now. Um, you've just won the, the Spanish League this year, so congratulations on that. And Thank you. Yeah, we're, um, you've obviously had a really successful season, kind of on all fronts, finishing first Spanish League. Steamrolled everyone on the season. Yeah, James is very <laughs> bitter about um, your guys' various games. Yeah, as well as kind of second in Copa del Rey and fourth at Champs Cup. So you guys have had probably your most successful season ever on on balance. Um, do you want to take us through that a little bit and kind of what you thought the the ingredients were to having the run that you had? Um, yeah, I guess you would, you would say it's the most successful year. I think something that helped us a lot, um, taking away the finals. We've always had a successful regular season since I've been a part of Bilbao and I think even before that um, and then we've we've in my time in Bilbao we've lost a lot of finals so I think not having a final this year definitely helps us in the <laughs> in the regular season it's legit like my first year we lost the final of the Europa Liga one which is the, the tournament obviously below um, Champions Cup we lost the final against a really strong Galatasaray by a point maybe and then we two weeks later we lost the final of the league by maybe two points um and the following league, the following year, we lost, I think, the final of the Kings Cup. We won the Europa League, which is the 
the one final in my time that we have won. Um, then the following year, I think we lost another Kings Cup. So we, like we've, and then this year we lost the final Kings Cup again. Um, we've always, we've always finished the regular season. Like you say, the the minor champions. We've been the minor champions of the league, and had consistent seasons. It's just a matter of um, putting it together at the end with something that I guess it was kind of like the monkey on the back type thing. Um, sure. So getting rid of that helps us a lot because. It's just that week in, week out, it's like we've been really good at. We've always been able to string together a lot of a lot of wins. So um, that really played in our favour. And I don't know, we we, we won the first game against Albacete, which we knew would be a really tough one. And then the second game we lost against Midabo, against Extra Madura. And then we just pretty much, um, I don't know, we went on a 16-game win run or something like that, just absolutely cleaned up. And a few of them were really close and we had a few comebacks. And, and it was really, seems like, I don't know, it, and I think everyone that played in the league realised how, how tight the league was. They were probably, we thought at the start of the season there would be a, a, between any one of five different teams being Canarias, us, um, Albacete, Illunion and, um, and Extra Madura. We thought it would be pretty much a league within a league of the, between those five teams. And I think it sort of was in the end. Um, yeah. But a lot of, we just thought, if we don't drop any games to anyone outside of those five, uh, those four other teams, and if we don't lose on our home court against anybody, then then we think we'll probably be able to win it. And that's pretty much what we did. We didn't lose to anyone out. Well, we we lost to um, Burgos, um, <laughs> but we didn't lose to anyone on our home court, and um, we only lost to one of those teams outside of those uh, in the, within those top four, which was Extra Madura in the second week. So I don't know. I think in terms of the game style. Um, we played a lot with we we've I think utilizing Manuel uh, Lorenzo as a two, I think he was really crucial for us. Um, when I got to Bilbao four years ago, he was 17. Um, was still physically more similar in terms of his height, a massive class too. But the leap forward that he took from last season to this season was massive. And I think him playing as a two is just, I mean, so hard for teams to compete against a guy of his ability now, I think he's now one of the better threes going around. I think he demonstrated that consistently over the, the course of the year. I think he's a sensational player. And just at the Euros under 22s last week, I don't know if you boys watched any of that, but he was just yeah, yeah. having an absolute field day there. It was like a man amongst boys. Can I just interrupt you though when you say man amongst boys? Yeah. How old is he? Because I feel like he's been on the brink of, I think I might have always thought he was older than he is from when I first saw him, but I feel like it's been his last year of getting the junior bonus for like 15 years now. It just seems to have yeah, he's younger. Than, he's younger than you think. I think he's only 21. That's So ridiculous. he's got it for at least another year. He's got it for at least one more year. And depending, I think he's born in September. So depending on when, how they adjudicate that rule, he may have two more, which I think would just be wild. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we we also picked up John Hernandez, which I think he played in both of our main lineups and was crucial. He had an unbelievable season. I think he's one of those guys that um, you know we've got a big like Hasso out there that occupies so much of the defense, and then another big like Manu, then someone like John who could come in and he was just you know picking up nice mismatches or just those open yeah. sort of five, six, seven foot shots and like in defense he's just or for for teams defense he's just so quick with his chair he's got a really short frame and just really such a good job of cutting and dragging and just made life easy like he's he's a really like he plays and this is a really good player I guess really good fundamentals like does a lot of back picking and just does those little one percenters like I remember playing with 
Justin Easton is one of the greater, one of the great Australian players. Um, is a four and a half and played a similar style. Obviously, a little bit bigger as a four and a half. But did so much work in the back court that when you got into the front court, the 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 work was done. All you had to do was score in you know, like a five on four or a four on three, or you know, yeah. or at least you're playing. You've got one of their bigs out. You're playing against best points, or whatever. Um, however you want to look at it. So playing with him was was sensational um, and Hasso as well as another guy that took a big leap forward from yeah. from last year he lost some more weight um, still a big man but was a bit more athletic I guess you'd say like looked a bit more like a professional basketballer which is something that he's, <laughs> yeah. uh, struggled, struggled a little bit with his weight but I think he had a bit more under control this year and hey, he, was, he was important he's Mexican man those guys know how to eat you can't blame they, <laughs> the weight thing yeah, they've got yeah, they've got cooking down and I live with him, so I definitely felt the effect of that. I think he lost that, <laughs> and I definitely maybe put on a few kicks. <laughs> um, from my one thing that I want to know, obviously I'm looking at it from the outside, but from your first loss of the season against Madiba to them just rattling off 16 in a row and just leaving everyone behind, was there like something changed? Did you guys sort of switch things up or grow in any way as the season went on or was it just kind of they showed up on the day and beat you guys fair and square yeah. like was there some, some sort of adjustments after that that you think made the difference yeah there certainly were we, we kind of just simplified things after that like it was our our head coach was, was his first year um as a head coach and first year coaching wheelchair basketball in any capacity this season so wow to put it frankly he had no idea what he was doing at the start of the season like he and <laughs> He, you could debate maybe toward the end as well. Um, uh, it's a cheap shot, but um, <laughs> no, nah, the the, like no, nah, yeah, he just literally. And when you come from a, he came from a basketballing background, so he understands basketball. But obviously, as you guys would know, um, he just had no idea about wheelchair basketball. And like to give you an idea, one of the first training sessions, or maybe a month in, I fell out of my chair, kind of forwards-ish to the side, and when I hit the ground, I kind of you know the typical oh, like yeah let out a bit of a not a yell but like a um i don't know you grunt. articulate the a grunt that's a better way of describing yeah. it yeah and he kind of ran over from the sideline he's like hey you're right you're right did you hurt your knee and i was like <laughs> like <laughs> it's just one of the things like he's just got no idea about wheelchair basketball disabilities yeah. or just just doesn't understand like the point system he got better obviously as the season went along and, and wrapped his head around it but at the start he just didn't so we do just all over the place with our lineups initially um and after that second game and first loss we kind of just simplified things dramatically and we just cut it back and we just started running two different lineups and then if we needed to do any changes we just made them within those lineups like a four for a four or a one for a one or whatever so and it got a lot easier with that we knew we would either play with our midpoint lineup with the two fives or with our four big lineup with um hustle and either being a four and a one which simplified things and it made life easier for the playing group um and i think that was that was pretty Pivotal. I think most teams had a similar thing, like you rotate between two main lineups. And then we were kind of just all on the same page, I guess you'd say. Like we bought into the playing style, whether we liked it or not. We kind of had accepted that if we were going to have a successful year, it was going to be playing to this style, um, which I think is probably something that we'd struggled with in previous years because we had a bigger Anglo-Saxon representation in previous years, like when we had... Josh and Tom and for that Josh and Jorge and then maybe because of that we had different influences on the the way that we wanted to play 
And then sure. when it came down to it, we kind of had the, the Spanish style or the, um, you said the allies style. And that was something that, <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that influenced it down the stretch. You know, we had different opinions on who, on what would be the most effective way to play which have asked for. Whereas this season, um, I was the, uh, the, the last remaining uh, member of that allied union, I guess. So I just kind of had to accept the way things were. Sure. And I think a lot of successful teams or I think there's more than one way to skin a cat. That's certainly evident. And it's not necessarily a matter of which style is best and which one would work the best. I think both different or many different styles can work so long as everyone buys in and everyone's on the same page. I think that's the important factor. And I think that's probably why we had a lot of success this year is because everyone just accepted and was on board with how we were going to play with Joe Aspel and we did it and it was reasonably efficient. Yeah. That, yeah. Think- it's interesting you say that because I, it was actually one thing I was going to ask you outright, but you've kind of covered it there is, I think if you look at the team that say you mentioned the team that won the EuroLeague, which was feels like forever ago now, was actually 2019, I think. That was on our home floor, That's right? like a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and that was the Josh and Tom unit, like you mentioned. And mm-hmm. I did think when I looked at the lineups you guys rolled out, specifically those first two games and then the loss to Madiba, I was like, mm, maybe John Hernandez and Jordi Ruiz is more of a downgrade from Tom and Josh than I thought, mm-hmm. than I had initially expected. But I think you guys were definitely stronger in the lineups. It's interesting to hear that that's basically down to down to just chemistry, like you say, or willingness to to play the roles. Yeah, I think it, it was just there was a lot of that over the years trying to fight between which way we we're going to play and. And yeah, there was, which is hard within a team. Like ultimately, um, sometimes more talent doesn't mean a better team. Um, and sometimes just a matter of playing, just that playing together and bringing Geordie in. Geordie's obviously a pretty, like a talented guy. And I think I realized, I didn't realize so much probably until we're at Euro Cup when he had to play a bigger role because we had yeah. to play at 14 and a half points instead of playing the whole season at 15 and a half sure. and Geordie had to do more. And then I sort of realized at that point, I was like, Oh yeah, this guy can, this guy can play. And I think he, he did a really good job. And then a lot of times was the, our main point guard and, and did a really good job of running the squad. And I really enjoyed, and I think I enjoyed probably that playing style more. Um, but a, a lot of the time during the season, he didn't have to do that because playing with an extra point on court, you can, you're not forced to, demonstrate everything that you can do because you, you I think we're just we were put in boxes a little bit more and like we were just really good role players in certain roles whereas because we've got that extra point on the court and you've got that extra length and you've got an extra you know big if there's less like less mismatches just all those little things that add up and especially over the course of 40 minutes um yeah certainly yeah yeah it's I cool think, man sorry I think you guys having what you said, that kind of prescriptive way to play probably for me, it would go a long way to explaining why you guys were so successful for a full season and then maybe fell short when it came to um, tournament play. Cause there's a thing of like, you guys roll off a bus after an eight hour journey and like, you know exactly where you're going to be and exactly what you're going to do. Seem like you get off the plane coming to our place and, Everyone knows exactly what you guys are going to run. Like we all do too. Yeah. yeah, like we all know exactly what you guys are trying to run as well, but it kind of doesn't matter if you do it perfectly. Like there's some of the 
especially with the four big lineup that you guys run, there's some stuff that it's like, okay, our absolute best case scenario is force all of this over here. And then you kind of live with this guy taking a shot that you wouldn't live with normally and you hope for the best. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, do you think that comes into it? Like you guys being a bit more prescriptive leading to like being able to do it every Saturday rather than show up once and I don't know. Improvise the game plan. Yeah, and a lot of our um, game plan, we we try and reduce, like, a lot of it comes back to, like, what I was saying about John and, and the work he does in, in the backcourt. And typically they, um, I think there's the the notion or the the presumption that in wheelchair basketball, that backpicking is a job that should be done by by low pointers. Um, whereas I think an effective backpicker, the, the better your chair skills, the better you're going to be at it. Um, and that was something like John being a big part of that, like, it was so hard to defend us, particularly when we play our four big lineup. When we when we get a back pick or two, and then you've we're arriving in it to the to the front court with advantage, and we're play we're getting there for four on three, three on two, five on four, and we've got and four of them are bigs. You know, like they're all big. <laughs> I'm the yeah. only one that's not. Um, so it, it was a simple style to play basketball. Like, um, and I, we we said it one time. I, sometimes I get frustrated with the way that we play basketball because it. it as I say, you kind of put in your little box, you, your role. If you do your role well, you win. But at the same time, it's not very challenging on an individual level. Um, and I, sometimes that frustrates me personally, morally. Um, I don't get a lot out of it at times. And I remember listening to one of our pregame chats and it was said there and it was said blatantly and openly, which I kind of appreciated hearing. It's like, we don't, when, we don't play a beautiful brand of basketball, like far from it. It's, it's an ugly maybe not you say ugly, but it's not a beautiful game of basketball. It's not like watching Canarias where they, they move the ball for 23 seconds and, you know, there's eight passes and then like someone will shoot an open shot on the right on the, on the shot clock buzzer and they almost always score. Like it's just unreal to watch all five right. players are involved um, touching the ball and all five players are a scoring threat. Like it's just awesome basketball to watch. Whereas ours is not that like, usually we have one player holding the ball for X amount of seconds until he may hear the shoots or makes the pass to the player who does shoot, you know, like yeah. very like try and remove us all of that, those potential, I guess, errors. Um, and then it's make it as simple a game. And we're shooting from ideally two foot under the basket, which, you know, removes a lot of that as well. So it's over the, I guess, span of 40 minutes. If you can do that, you've got less yeah, room for error or you've got less potential errors. And then it's more consistent game style, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, th- I think it's um, it's interesting you phrase it that way because I think with the guys you've mentioned who've kind of had big seasons, uh, guys who you mentioned about kind of be- feeling a bit boxed in yourself and maybe that's not the best thing for your personal or individual development at this point. But I think you kind of see it with John and with Hasso to some extent that these guys have almost landed in their ideal roles to kind of at least serve a winning team. Because I think John was always kind of like, when he was with Amiab, it was always kind of like, mm, this guy's pretty good. Not sure what he does. Like, <laughs> not, sh- not sure what his speciality is. Let's put it that way. And then it's kind yeah. of, he's arrived in Bilbao and it's like, oh, this guy maybe doesn't have a huge individual speciality. He's just really good at filling in the blanks around everybody else. And I think yeah. Hasso as well, to some extent. We've 
this is going back a few years, me and James have always been like fairly big Hasso fans and been like, there was a stretch where he wasn't playing a whole lot and we would kind of say to each other, but like, they do realize they have this guy, don't they? Who's like 12 feet tall, who barely plays ever. But it's, yeah. it's cool to see him get a shot. Um, and yeah, just yeah, I think see- Hasso across, just before you carry on, I think Hasso That's across cool. many leagues is a bit of a cult hero. Like this. <laughs> you're not the first person that's told me that within their group of mates, um, Hasso is like their their man. I think there's there's a um, bunch of, bunch of Italian guys, and I know there's a group within the French league that are just all everyone just loves getting around Hasso. Oh, really? Just, yeah. <laughs> that's this, interesting. Yeah, massive, massive Mexican man that just I don't know. He's the people's champion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's as well because you kind of and I don't know where it comes from because it's never the case. You kind of expect the massive guys to not be super lovely and like he's been really nice anytime I've spoken to him and it's like never the case like if you look at like the giants in wheelchair basketball like he's lovely Lee's absolutely lovely like they're all great and I think that's part of it because you're like ah this guy's big and tough and whatever you're like oh no he's 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 really sweet Simon Munn set the whole archetype back by like years didn't he because he was just determined to be the big bully and between Simon and the Aussies yeah Uh, Simon and every Aussie ever yeah, they, they maintain that. And even our little big guys like Tristan, who's not the biggest guy, but um, he's definitely maintaining that mantle of um, being, a, being a tough guy. But he's probably one of the last ones, I guess, that old. <laughs> our big four fires definitely maintain that for a long, long time. They're yeah, yeah, now, sadly. It's a dying breed. It is a dying breed. You're right. Okay. Um, so I think this, you've maybe kind of, um transitioned it or dipped our toe in with this a little bit but what one thing we've spoken about kind of around the euro cup time and when we've had a couple of the boys from albacete on is you maybe this feels different from an insider point of view but around bilbao from an outsider perspective there very much seems to be you guys even prior to this season where you've been probably the most successful you've been you seem to have very much achieved villain status across the Spanish league. I don't know if you if if you don't agree with that, you can tell me now, and I'll um I'll pivot topics quickly. I do. I wholeheartedly agree with it. Yeah. Carry on. Okay. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. So by yeah. design, uh, maybe a little bit. No, I think it's just by nature in terms of. I think a little bit comes from Basque culture. I think they're pretty hard people. Um, I think they've, they've been, yeah. um, they've felt, I guess, hard done by, subjugated for a long time. Um, I guess, like, they've got a similar history to sort of to the Northern Ireland, I guess it is, James, is that right? Um, yeah. Like, Northern, with the independence well, movement yeah. and, like, well, no. the, sorry? Yeah, it's that's, that's a different podcast altogether. <laughs> but, yes, that's, that's you, I'm get, just trying you, get, to... you get a gold star. Yeah, I think yeah, I just to, wanted to make to sure it was point, the right part of Ireland. To your, to your point, it's the same thing kind of in the UK with both um, Scotland and Ireland being very England, well, Northern Ireland specifically, being very England opposed. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think it's it's kind of a pattern that's replicated. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think it's a bit of like it's part of the, in, their, in their genome, I guess you'd say. Um, and they've always played their way like a very aggressive style. But I remember we played against... Um, um, Badajoz against Extremadura in, at home and it was just one of the it was a super aggressive game which ours always are um, and like I, I'm generally and I went up to the Badajoz boys afterwards I was chatting to Billy and Phil and Matt 
I think George as well. And I was like, yeah, look, sorry about that voice. Um, and then I was like, don't feel bad. Like it's not a personal thing. Like it, I'm generally in a state of to, from mild to severe depression during the entire week because our training sessions are like that. Like it's always like that. We're just like a really competitive group. And even within, I can't understand how they consider themselves friends. Like I would never have disputes like that with my friends and teammates, the way that the Spanish do. Like it's just on another level. I remember when I first got there, we played a couple of friendly games against the, the then Canary Islands team. And I spoke zero Spanish at that point and um, was just watching this friendly game. And we, we were up early and it was all good. And then just, I don't know, they scored a few buckets and things went wrong. I think we ended up losing the game from being up 20. And just the internal implosion within our team and just the way that they talk to each other, the way they're just getting stuck into each other. I was on the bench next to Josh and I was just looking at him like, where am I? What is happening? Like, and like, are they always like this? Like, literally, what am I experiencing here? They're like, yeah, mate, this is it. It's like, holy, like, wow, this is incredible. And it was, it was just consistently like that. It's just, it's just super competitive and, and we'll, like that win at all costs, doesn't matter what you have to give up to win, like, morally i guess it was it's just wild i guess when you're playing every weekend when you and that is i guess that is exacerbated even more when you're not playing against your friends like if that's how competitive you are with your friends imagine what it's like when you're playing against joe blow on on the weekend that's what i was saying to the battle boys i'm like it's like this for our training sessions every day so don't feel bad on the weekend it's not that there's nothing personal against anybody it's just how how we are as a as a team and you just kind of adopt the the that mentality and it's kind of like i guess our team's identity um, yeah and sure. it suited our game style well because it was that was our game style it was in a super aggressive like a lot of our defense was played on the back of being a really aggressive defensive team um not necessarily like really clinical in terms of jumping and triple switching and um that sort of stuff it was just literally being really aggressive with our chairs and making teams beat us physically and i think over 40 minutes you can you can weather a team down and also when you play against new guys or like the young guys or guys that aren't experienced or used to that level of chair contact and pressure like um then they they struggle or it, it shocks them initially and maybe you might get a bit of an advantage there and it takes them a while to to get back into the game sure yeah i think I'm yeah most people so hate glad. us i guess so that's the answer <laughs> yeah you, yeah we all do i'm so glad you <laughs> confirm this because i always wondered because there's a real thing where coaches are always like we're not playing defense hard enough like if you think people are going to defend us like this in the weekend like i want you to like be hitting people's chairs as if they're the team you're playing on saturday and there's always a thing where people look around at each other and there's like an agreement non-verbally to be like i'm absolutely not going to do that to you (laughs) i would to the team i'm playing next week but i'm so happy to find out that like I always imagined you guys would be like clipping each other's back casters on the way to open layups and stuff just on a Tuesday night. And I'm so happy to find out that that's actually the case. Yeah. Yeah. And and like the amount of times, you know, at practice, any given day, you could be sidelined for the rest of the season with like a stupid (laughs) unsportsmanlike foul from, from anybody. Like it could be like the the old boy on the team or like the, the rookie, like anybody could just fifth wheel you and send you flying just because, they don't want to give up an open layup or and it's just like there's no that is never taken into consideration so but we would always be concerned for, for our safety yeah it's, it's just um, like sorry go i just like i feel like there's a just a high level basketball player agreement where it's just like 
in a random training session on a Tuesday night. Like no one's trying to die. Like, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm yeah. gonna let you have that lane because I don't want to kill anyone as long as you also let me have that courtesy like it's just you just have that understanding once you get to like 20 and you've been wiped out by some absolute idiot who like comes part time you're like hey come on man like what are we doing I, here I think that's yeah. a dig at me because there was a time in that session a few years back where I absolutely cleared you out as you were trying to catch a ball on a fast break I don't know if you remember that but you ended up like twisted in half um, oh, that was terrible. It was one of those yeah, I was just like bad. still on the way up as you got me. So I was like, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, uh, I'll not dig into everything that you just said there, Yannick. I have like literally thousands of questions off the back of that, but I'll rapid fire a couple that just popped up in my head. Um, mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you say that they're all kind of so intense and into it with each other, considering that Josh was there for so many years and he, seems like the absolute opposite of that. He seems like the most unrattleable guy I've ever seen. I imagine yeah. that he just existed outside of that whole sphere of arguing about everything. Yeah, yeah, he did. And, and like they call him the, the Iceman. Um, yeah. Classic, that, that classic nickname. Um, but yeah, he, he's also one of the most competitive people um, that you'll ever meet. Like he's super American and super just loves winning. Um, also loves wheelchair basketball and yeah. just basketball in general. Like I think in his room, he just had a framed photo of a basketball on his wall just to stare at when he was in bed. <laughs> think, th- think about just scoring, just loves, there's nothing that man loves more than just putting the ball in the hoop. Like he just crushes it. He's um, man, one, of, one of my all time favorite players. Yeah. And he's one of, he's a guy like I've played against him um, a lot internationally and Paralympics and world champs and, and things and knew he was good, but it wasn't until I got to Bilbao um, after like playing with him there I was like man you are unreal like yeah. he, and he honestly is he's just a freak of nature and just love super professional loves training and I was super grateful to be able to play uh like three I think we uh, I think we played three years together there and he actually came and played a season in Australia with with my team so oh did he um, that's cool cool man he did yeah and he crushed it over here and just a great guy to play with really and just for that reason for being so competitive and so so professional and so just so good. Um, he makes it very enjoyable. So, yeah. Um, sure. But yeah, he, he, he would definitely like during the training sessions, he was fully in. And because of how competitive he is, he would never want to lose. So that would raise the level even further. And it'd be like the amount of times we would almost have fights and like I would leave our practice sessions. So, like the adrenaline, your adrenaline is so high because of how emotionally bought in you are and how much you want to win like i would generally want to win our practice session scrimmages more than the games on the weekend because of <laughs> it's bordering on dragon rights for the rest um, of the week right yeah and there's like it bought it but it almost gets like violent to it to a degree like it's it's almost it's it's probably the the level of intensity you want for a team to get better because you're pushing as hard as you can and you'll do anything you can to win but at the same time it you've risked that bubbling over into like, I don't know, like a physical confrontation or um, something like that. But it was, yeah, high level and super, super intense. So, and Josh was certainly a part of that. But then once the practice session was done, like he just has a great way of like being, going back into his own little bubble. He had his um, fiance and now wife there as well. Um, So then he would just kind of disappear and be be outside of that bubble. Um, I would try and work my way into his little bubble sometimes and, but yeah, it was it was good. It was an intense time, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds it. And it, oh, I, I think it's it's re- interesting that you were like so daunted by the intensity of, like you say, this 
borderline violence of the kind of level of training and getting into each other afterwards. Because I think, fair to say, the kind of UK, at least, stereotypes of the Aussies is you guys aren't really afraid to say anything. You know, you guys say it like it is as much as ever needs doing. So it's mad that it was even like a level above what that would be for you to yeah. go, whoa, these guys really don't hold back. Yeah, just the, the way that it was done, I guess, was was the shocking part. Like, yeah, it, it, it certainly did blow me back. And that, yeah, saying that coming from a program like the Australian program where we've got a similar reputation on an international level, particularly in that period, um, like when I started playing with the program, that was 100% our reputation when our bigs were Justin and Brad and Troy and um, there was like guys like Michael Hartnett, um, yeah. guys rolling around like Tristan as well. Like there we, we had that reputation internationally for a long time. Maybe there's still some remnants of it. They were probably nicer guys, but still as aggressive, I hope, um, at the moment. But yeah, yeah it was it, it was shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Um, and okay. last point, you can just t- give me a true or false on this theory. I still believe people resent Bill Bow to some extent because even after years of Asier proving to be as good as he is, nobody believes he's as good as he is because he doesn't look like he should be, and people resent that on some level. Yeah, uh, true. Like, I think um, his greatest asset is his ability to build a team. I think he's done a great job of he's obviously um, runs the show in terms of the team in Bilbao and chooses who the team signs. I think he's done a great job of signing players. I think that that he's constructed a great team that, that works for him perfectly yeah. because – I think in other teams, I don't think it would be near as successful. And I think if you look at his past, his playing career, he hasn't been in other teams at all. Whereas he's got the keys to the city in Bilbao. Like it's literally his team. Um, So therefore, like he's just managed and he's done a great job and hats off to him. Like he's he's signed a great team that, that does the dirty work, does the hard work for him because athletically and physically, like he can't do it. He can't, particularly every year, like he gets older and, and, doesn't get in better shape. I think you can, that's easy enough to see from the outside. Um, <laughs> but he's got, like he plays with a four big lineup where he's got three massive dudes on that do a lot of the hard work for him and occupy a lot of the defense. And then me as a one-pointer slaving away out there. Um, <laughs> like, granted, he's still got to do what he does and he, and he does do it uh, generally, but he's he's just signed a, signed a great team and he knows, like then he can just kind of play chess and move his place at, um, his pieces around and that's because um, he's obviously from a physical standpoint that's not his his strength his strength is um, the, the mental side in terms of yeah. doing those things and then then he can benefit and he's had I would say his most successful wheelchair basketball and this is a probably a weird thing especially for a guy that's not in good physical shape have probably been from the years 35 to I think he's going to turn 40 this year those have been his best years of wheelchair basketball you know the the back end of his career for a for a not physically in shape guy is is impressive and i think it is a is testament to that to his ability to have been been able to to build his ideal team and and then run it yeah so. sure okay i could hit you with a thousand more questions on the inner workings of the bilbao dynamic but we've probably got a couple more things to get through that are more valuable to anybody who's still listening an hour in so I'll let yeah. James carry on. Okay, so 
my last question to do with club basketball might not even get an answer, but I thought I'd ask anyway. Do you have any idea what you're doing next season? And if so, would you like to tell us? <laughs> if you say no, you it's fine. Because we, we, we weren't promised an exclusive by all accounts, so you can tell us no yeah. if you don't want to share. I know that I'm definitely not going back to Bilbao and I'm not staying in Spain. Uh, outside of that, I don't know. There's nothing's finalised yet. It looks promising, but yeah, I, I won't be in Spain and therefore obviously won't be in Bilbao. Um, but I'm hoping to be able to, to have something locked in in the next, I don't know, week or two. But it's looking promising with the club that I'm speaking to. So, Wicked. When that eventually goes through, as I hope it does for you, can we get you back in for an exclusive? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Wicked. Right. Earth, mate. Repeat, Are you asking yes. me this time, so I don't have to ask you guys. <laughs> well, you never asked me, so you, you still had a, a bullet in the chamber to ask me specifically if you wanted to. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep ask that you. one on I'll play your power play if you want. Okay, cool. Awesome. Doors open. The door's open. You're Yannick Blair. Let's not forget this. <laughs> like this means this means more for us than it does for you, mate. Like I think that's I feel like you need to remember that. Um, okay, cool. So national team stuff, what's the plan for this summer? You're currently in hotel quarantine for a couple more days, right? And then but today today's the, the last day, oh, actually. Oh sick. So no, we caught I get we out caught in... you just before freedom, eh? That's right. Yeah, I get out in literally 24 and a half hours. Tomorrow morning, first light, I'm out of here. So, um, but yeah, so our preparation is we're a little bit frustrated in Australia. At the moment, I'm sure everyone will be aware that Australia has done a really good job of handling the coronavirus. Very, very little corona loose on the loose here. Um, and therefore, when there is a little bit floating around, we have like this massive knee jerk reaction and shut down states and cities and things like that. And they do it pretty much overnight without warning. So at the moment, Jeez. there's a small outbreak in New South Wales, uh, just around the, in the Sydney, which means that they're closing off like, and yesterday Bill and I spent the day watching the news and just like every hour, another state, boom, South Australia closes borders to New South Wales for Whoa. at least a week and Queensland, boom, close their borders. And that just, from a national program standpoint, it makes things really difficult for us to prepare for for a, a Paralympics because we're we're running our national league at the moment, which um, have games almost every weekend, and there's players and teams from each of the states. And now, looks like for the next round, the the Sydney team won't be able to compete, and the Wollongong team, which is a city maybe two hours from um, from Sydney, they may not be able to enter into the state of Queensland either because they're even though they're not from Sydney, which is where the outbreak is, they're in the state of New South Wales. And sure. some states just close off to areas and some states just say, all right, nobody from like a blanket um, rejection of anyone from that state. So it's makes it really difficult. And it's happened consistently over the last 18 months. So even though we've had, I don't know, maybe in total, I couldn't even tell you how many cases we've had, maybe 20,000 total, just to give you a number. So not many. And usually yeah. these outbreaks, you might have 10 cases or five cases in an outbreak. Like in Spain, we're talking about still now, and the situation is good, 4,000 cases a day in Australia, you might get five, but they'll shut down a city for a week. <laughs> well, I, I so, wouldn't, co wouldn't complain about it too much, man, because it sounds like what is actually being implemented in Australia is what the UK has been claiming it's about to do the entire time, but they've followed through on none of it. So, yeah, 
you're in an infinitely better shape than we are, so maybe it is worth the hassle as much as it does sound like it's a difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, it's just a matter of, like, from our managerial standpoint, for them to try and get people to, to events. But that's kind of the, the landscape for the next sort of two months. We're coming together as a national program pretty much weekly, either for training camps. We've got our final selection camp starting on Sunday. Um, they'll go for a week and then... After that, we're together pretty much every week, either playing in our national league or having training camps with the national team. And we'll be doing that yeah, up until up until we leave. We have our final staging camp in Cairns in northern Australia from the 16th to 20th of August and then into the village. So That's awesome, man. Um, so just on the back of kind of a couple of things you mentioned, you mentioned earlier on kind of a, the old school Aussie guys, kind of the you know, the tough guys for how you phrased it. And there's maybe been a little bit of a changing of the guard in terms of the older guys like Justin and Brad moving out. And you guys have a bit of a younger wave in now. Um, still, obviously, veterans like Bill and yourself, to some extent, sticking around. So how do you yeah. see kind of the the future, the Aussie pipeline, if you like? Is it looking as strong as it always has? Is the talent coming through? Yeah, yeah. So I guess that changing the guard happened after 2016, which is where we well and truly dropped the ball. Um, and it was a, as clear a sign as any that there was a need for change. Uh, we made that pretty much straight after. Like in 2017, we we started working with our new core lineup, which is the same one that's we're using today, which is the four being primarily Bill, three threes, and and a one, um, utilizing Tom, Tom O'Neill Thorne, who's obviously um, a superstar, just an absolute freak with the way that the way that he plays wheelchair basketball, one the things that he does. And then Sean Norris has obviously um, been a part of the, the previous six no, months of the role. I didn't, program, even, but he's now... I didn't even mention Sean Norris. That was very disrespectful of me. Excuse me on that one. <laughs> no, you're right, mate. But yeah, he's, he's been a fundamental part of the previous, um, I guess, program or the success that the Rollers program had. And now he's sort of like our leader and, and he's our captain and, um, it plays a hugely important part of our of our next generation and our next, um, I guess, our rebuild. And then, yeah, Kim slots in there and, and myself. And now we're sort of just working on strengthening that 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 game style or, or trying to find more players that fit into that. Like well, Michael Algrins has come a long way and, right. and can help Bill out being that big, big. And then we've got more threes coming in. Uh, Sammy White's another class one who's getting better. And that's kind of what we're trying to do is, is work on those key that key lineup and keep strengthening it, and then we've got a few other um, lineups which are obviously important to to help us get through a tournament. So yeah, it's 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 been exciting, and it's been I think we've we've competed in, and got some reasonable results at Worlds in 2018, and trying to just keep that momentum going going forward. Um, and then to answer about the, the younger kids, there are some really good ones coming through. We usually do reasonable at our under 23 worlds like i think we always finish third is kind of our results and it good enough to maintain that program we always get a couple of every year a couple of new kids that come through that under 23 program there's a few really good ones in there at the moment now which i think in a couple of years time we'll start to get an opportunity with the men and just just to maintain that um that pipeline so we never hopefully have to go through a, a rebuilding again not that it was a long rebuilding after 2016 or in 2016, but it was just a reshuffle, and now we just try and maintain that consistency, I guess. Wicked. Uh, I can't believe you um, 
you brought up finishing third at the World Championships because that almost triggered some bad memories in James by the looks of it from um, 2013, was that? 2014. Yeah. Oh, in in, in Adana, in Turkey. Yeah, I still don't know how you finished that. I have no <laughs> idea. Were you the, sorry to offend you here, James, but were you there? I was there, oh, yeah. Shot, shots oh, fired. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't know anybody on the GB like prior to that tournament. I didn't know anybody on the GB team, and I only remember Greg because and he, he missed the shot after mine. Um, and I'm pretty sure Phil was there, and that was it. Like I, that whole squad was brand was brand new to me. Okay, so you were part of that yeah. team. Yeah, that team was like if you look at our guys now, like that team was like me, Greg, Phil, Billy, George, Jim Palmer. Was George on it. George uh, didn't. Yeah. George didn't play a lot at that point though, because it was very mids heavy. Harry was there as well, man. That was another. One. Harry, yeah, I think yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember Harry just because he was that crazy guy with no legs, <laughs> and I think he would still have, is, yeah, no teeth. Like man, miss, miss Harry so much his teeth, is I guess. the Harry is the all time leader in. I can't believe you've just done that place like once a scrimmage or once a game or once a day or whatever the setup is. He'll do something that you'd be like, "What do you mean you've just done that?" Like he'll do some weird yeah. like catch, pull backwards, beat someone off the spin without touching wheels. Like, yeah, uh, weird. He's, he's the all time like, leader. He's the all time leader in guys that people might have only seen play once and definitely remember something or other from it. Yeah, he's but, still the GB version of Tom, like in that regard. Like they just do things that you like, you shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, That's no. too much. Yeah. Just an all-time athlete. And I think Harry's thing comes from like years and years of like mucking around out of his day chair, just crawling about. That body control can't be like taught in the gym or anything. That's just like years well, and years to, of treating the whole world as like yeah. a jungle. To gym give some evidence like, to that you know, theory. James, Tom O'Neill Thorne, who I think I'll put him in a similar boat. He um, he grew up not using a day chair until I don't know what age, like he would just walk on his hands. And if you've seen his hands, they're huge. Like they work his feet. Um, so I he was thing, that, like lived upstairs and would always just cruise upstairs on his hands. Um, so I think there's probably something to that theory. Spending the majority of your early life, not using a wheelchair does, I guess, do a lot for your core yeah. development. I'm sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, if there's any like junior coaches listening to this, you're gonna catch some sort of yeah. malpractice case if you take kids out of wheelchairs and you bring them to wheelchair yeah. basketball and it's night. just getting kids crawling about to like learn body control rather than how to like shoot, pass, and dribble. Like, please do not do that. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's just triggered a um, I was talking to James about this prior to us having you on, Yannick, but um. So the game that you guys were just talking about where you ran that layup into beat GB in the third, fourth game, uh, I didn't make the team that year and I had just gone abroad. So I watched that game on terrible Wi-Fi from um, my little flat in Italy. And I remember watching the basket go and then I remember Greg missing. And I think a year or so after that, we played you guys at a friendly in Kitak Yushu, kind of the Aussie development team or however it was coined at the time and um, yeah. I got called in to speak to Matt Foden our junior coach at that point who was like prepping me on some stuff and he was like there's some good lows in this tournament the Japanese lows are kind of experienced Yannick Blair's here for the Aussies and I was like who's Yannick Blair I just had had a complete blank on this one he was like oh he's the guy who ran that layup into beaters this time last year I was like oh well 
that's uncomfortable. I could have saved myself a lot of hassle if I'd just known known that. But I blame the um, I blame the resolution of the stream I was watching. So no offense. Yeah. No, coming out of Turkey, man, I'm sure that stream was of um, pretty low quality. <laughs> Wicked. I think um, is that everything for us? I think we've just got questions to hit at this point. Yeah, man, we'll rattle through some questions if that's all right. You've got nowhere to be, obviously, and it's <laughs> past 11 at night for us. So, yeah. Um, okay, so a couple of weird ones. Let me see. So we've got one, two, three, four. Yeah. Uh, okay, first question. Uh, what, from your point of view, is the difference between Australian, British, and American players? Ah, yeah, right. Um, I think Americans just have that. I think based on, and this is probably more of a historical thing, I think GB and Australia might be getting better at it now. America, based on their college program, the way that they can churn out players through that with the fundamentals that they have, because I, I was a part of that for five years um, and it played a, like just experiencing it and seeing how they do things and how they train their players. It, you can see why they have such a successful um, national program and just the, how aggressive they are, how much they talk, how well they communicate, how well they all, because they've all had the same upbringing through those college programs. They can all just get on the same page so quickly. I think probably Australia and GB are doing a better job of that now with, with our national programs covering that space for not having um, intercollegiate programs. But I think that just their aggressiveness with their in defense with it, yeah, I think a lot of it is verbal as well. And like, they're also aggressive to get hands in passing lanes. I remember just when we played them in 2018, that was the sort of thing that I think the reason why they beat us in that semifinal was just how, how much of a shock it was, how aggressive they are just constantly, like with their chairs in defense and just constantly in passing lanes and the amount of intercepts they have, those sorts of things yeah. are just, we're big. And I don't know, GB players is, is, a, is a weird one. I think, recently you guys have obviously taken a big step in becoming probably the number one program. And I think a lot of it's the flow on effect from probably the investment in 2012 in your Paralympic program and the flow on effect. Now you see sort of that four years, six years, eight years later. Um, but in terms of how I would classify them as players, I don't know. I've struggled to differentiate us too much i would tend to put us in the similar boat for being all sort of that having a similar anglo-saxon style in terms of the way our programs are run because i think our programs probably base a lot off each other and whoever's been successful immediately prior you know like australia was um the best for a long time so probably you guys borrowed some stuff from us and then we probably borrowed some stuff from you guys in the u.s yeah, I mean, you you took our coach, you know. So <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah. so I think it's it's probably hard to to differentiate us, and it's probably a lot easier to put us in the same boat for that reason, because I think we are probably pretty similar in a lot of ways, and and whoever's doing the best will probably therefore, like we always felt like, and when we were, when we were winning um, worlds and 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 Paralympics, we that was always our mantra is like we've got the target on our back we've got to keep getting better because we know like everyone wants to emulate us now everyone's trying to emulate us now because we are like you always want to beat the best and at that period we were um now we've got we're not so we've got that relieved ourselves of that and now we're trying to beat either you guys or the us and, and base ourselves back more on that cool all right 
Um, if you had to play in another body, which would you choose, Rose Hollerman or Asier Garcia? Easily Rose every day of the week. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to just like shoot the ball like that for an hour and be like, what do you mean it it'd goes be, in every time? It'd be nice. <laughs> just like after, catch after. the ball and try and miss and just be like, oh, yeah. it goes in anyway. Like throw it the wrong direction and be like, I'm not sure if you saw this, James, or caught wind of it, but after we narrowly beat you guys by a point in the um, in the quarterfinal at the Kings Cup, I was getting off the bus, walking into, uh, wheeling into the hotel, and I see John Hernandez, who speaks zero English, like not a lick of English, with Rose Holloman, and she was signing his playing jersey. And I was like, what am I watching? What am I watching here? And he, he said to me, he's like, she's just such an incredible player. He's like, I just need to have a memory of, because she, like, even though we, we, we won by a point, like she torched us. I don't know how many she had, like a typical 30. Um, and just some of the most incredible shots. And a couple of them were, were on John. And he was just saying to me, he's like, yeah, I just need, need some, like a, I just need to recognize her, her greatness, I guess you'd say. Yeah, um, awesome. And because a couple of them were like, like, dying seconds of the shot clock, just a spinning, um, not maybe two chair length in from three, the three in his face. And he was like, yeah, look, I need her to sign this T-shirt because she's just done some horrible things to me. <laughs> yeah. She she did so, that twice in that game. And then the second twice, one, I was like, yeah. oh, no. Oh, no. It's going. Yeah. It's going to go in. But I think they the might have both been on John. Like 22 <laughs> points on 12 shots. Like, yeah. Yeah, she's completely awesome. Um, cool. Uh, next one. What's your favorite Spanish food? Ooh, I'd have to say paella uh, would probably be it. Yeah, I was a big fan of those. They're delicious. Cool. Um, how did you like playing in the US College League? A lot. Yeah, I was a huge fan. I had two different experiences. One, one year in, in Missouri uh, and then four years or three and a half years in, in Alabama. And yeah, loved it. It was a great opportunity to play with a lot of different players. And as I said, like, also, if you want to study, like it's a, it's a no brainer because everything is structured to support both your athletic career and your, um, your uh, study, your scholarly, scholar career. Well, help me out there. Educational no, career. Scholastic. Um, scholastic. Scholastic. There we go. <laughs> Which obviously. Um, God, someone's yeah, so got a law degree. Sick. <laughs> and um yeah, and obviously the social side of things is awesome as well there, which was probably a little bit too awesome for me in some years, which we could probably get into on another podcast. But um, yeah, it was it was awesome. I enjoyed all three facets, like a social a social perspective. The the schooling was good, and and the basketball was awesome as well. So can't can't complain, and and would recommend it for for young kids that are um, if they're interested in studying. I think it's a it's a no brainer. Can I just ask you off the back of that, Yannick? Um, <laughs> when you say you'd recommend it to kind of kids coming through so I finished school I was 18 and I went to play in Europe like a matter of months afterwards and it became very obvious to me very quickly that I could probably hack the basketball to some extent but was in no way set up to live and fend for myself for the first time um so in that kind of sense because you obviously came to Europe a bit later on having done all the college stuff would you recommend going down the college route before giving the real pro experience a try out? Yeah, I think it's a logical step. And obviously you see it for in our body sports. And I think 
it's a shame that it doesn't happen more for wheelchair basketball because the, the college league, when I got there and even before I got there was probably when it was at its peak and then it was still strong when I got there. And it, um, But it's, I think there's less, because I think probably the money that's on offer now in Europe, guys are just so tempted to go and start earning straight away. Yeah. So a lot of them are foregoing that that college experience with the interest of just making cash right off the bat, which is a hard thing to tell an 18 year old to do. But at the same time, um, yeah, it, it, it just, it's, I don't know, you're, you're, everything in that lifestyle is built and designed to support you. And you're, it's like everyone that goes there, goes there when they're 18, you know, like, it's not like when you go to yeah. a European club and you're the only 18 year old, you know, you're the only kid, maybe yeah, in, yeah. for you that went to Italy, you're the only one, or maybe one of few that doesn't speak Italian, you know, you're just in a completely foreign environment. And obviously you learn a lot, you grow a lot, but it's a hard slog. And maybe that transition would be a lot smoother um, if you went to college first. And yours, it also gives a lot more structure to your off-court lifestyle as well. Like basketball is obviously the main goal and the driving force for you to go to Europe. But you learn pretty quickly when you're over there that there's a lot of time in the day and you've got a lot of downtime. And if you're not proactive with it, I think a lot of people find themselves either really bored or they just don't know what to do with themselves. And it's just a lot of time to fill in and you're maybe not being as constructive or productive with your time as you'd like to be. Whereas when you go to college, like you're training the same amount or, but you're also studying during the day, you make a lot of friends with kids, your own age. You're also playing in the college league against kids that have your own age. Um, and then, obviously, the the yeah the social side of it is huge as well. So, um, plus, it's a, a unique experience that you can only do for certain years of your life. Like, it's a bit yeah. weird. It's doable, and people do it to go to college when they're thirty. But you obviously, um, it's not the common thing. But it's it's cool to go when you're eighteen, and you know, up to your sort of mid twenties, you can get away with being on a college campus. After that, you still <laughs> you fall into another bracket. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think it's. It was, I loved it. I think Rose would tell you the same that she had a great time. Um, and you, you, like you would say, the, the standard of basketball is lower. Yes, but it's also different. And I think for that reason, like it's, you still develop. And um, and I think if more kids went, the standard would obviously get higher as well. But it, sure. it's it's still good basketball. Like it's, it's technically really sound, and you spend so much time training, and the schools also. They have so many, so much, and so many resources, so many coaches that they, their programs are really professional and they get the most out of all the kids because maybe they don't have as much because they can't attract kids with, they can't pay them, they can give them scholarships, obviously, but they can't attract them maybe as much talent and there's restrictions on studying, whatever. So they don't have maybe as much talent on their roster as a European team, obviously. But for that reason, they try, they get as much out of and they develop their players as much as they can. So I think it would be. It is good. Awesome. That's really informative, man. Thank you for that. No problem. Okay. So um, I'm going to slip in here a couple of questions that me and Mark normally ask people and I should have prepped you for it, but time differences meant that anytime I remembered this, it was like 3 a.m. for you. So it was next to you. are like, hey, when you're coming on, remember this. Let's not um, get into time differences here, man. Otherwise, we're going to have to tell yeah. the story of how we had to rebook this whole thing because we got the time difference yeah. wrong. Second, second time. I Googled it. Uh, yeah, I Googled it. It said plus nine and a half hours and it was actually only plus eight and a half. There you go. That's the whole story. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? 
I've got a put a couple, but I'll give you the first one. Um, okay, give us a couple. This, this one I like a yeah. The main one, the one that I, I really love um, is be where you are, not where you're not. I think that one's super, super applicable to any situation and anybody. Um, mm. I think a lot of times we spend a lot of time thinking about what's going to happen in the future or like wishing we were somewhere else or just essentially not making the most of an opportunity. It's when you are somewhere, be there and don't do things, I guess, half-assed would be the way to you put it, just to yeah. make the most of any situation. And, and I think... Um, you know, that kind of flows. Another one's kind of make you are, it will be what you make of it is kind of, that was what I was told by before I went to college when I was chatting to her, um, an Aussie go- a girl actually that had been over and come back and it's kind of flows in the same sort of space. It's like, this, she said to me, like the situation or the experience will be what you make of it. You know, like if you really want it to be incredible, then it, then it will be, and it can be. Um, so I think that was, that, those are both obviously they're very similar and fall in the same space. And I think they're really, applicable to anybody in any situation. So I think they are awesome. And another one, which is um, a song lyric, and this can obviously get people in trouble, this piece of advice. But I heard it when I was maybe 16 or 17 with my old man listening to the classic radio station, uh, one of the classics radio stations that we have in Australia. And it is um, the money that we save now can't buy our youth again or won't buy our youth again. So um, obviously that can be a, potentially dangerous piece of advice depending on your financial situation and the decision that you take. But I've always tried to, um, based on that, let, not let, I guess, it's obviously important to make good financial decisions, but at the same time, experiencing as much as you can in life as well, I think is also important. Um, So I've always sort of tried to live by that sort of mantra and and, and doing, experiencing as much as I can and not letting, um, a question of a few dollars get in the way of um, doing those things. Obviously, you need. Yeah. It's important to. I don't I'm not recommend any people to burn all their cash just to go on that's a mad cool, man. or that, something like. That's <laughs> a very welcome piece of advice to two people who are shelling out for weddings in the very near future. So you've made me feel yeah. a bit better about that. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that, right. The memories you, count you, for a lot more. Yeah, you saying that always makes like that. That makes me laugh because I always find it funny when you see people like blowing money in clubs on bottles and stuff and they're like yeah you can't take it with you and you're like you can absolutely yeah. take it with you to your 30s like yeah you can <laughs> you know you're not you can't take it with you when you die but like absolutely tomorrow morning your bank account <laughs> can't yeah. handle the money you just spent on a bottle but yeah. yeah um okay and on that the inverse of that question which we love to ask people what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given <laughs> It's just going to be the uh, money one again. It probably could be, yeah. There's probably some decisions I made. Like, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> um, uh, that one I wish you'd prepare me with because it's not something I think about often. Um, it's fine. That's just worst. a joke, mostly. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sure I've been given some bad advice somewhere along the way. So uh, if it'll probably come to me later today. Maybe I can text it to you to put in. Uh, on your, no on your Instagram page or something. Yeah, that'd be man. hilarious. We go on in post production and be like, "Hello, welcome to this week's podcast." By the way, there'll be a bit in an hour and fifteen minutes or whatever. No, that's completely insane. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. But text it to me just for fun. Like, I just want to know. Yeah. Another okay. one that go to the to the first one, like best piece of advice. This is like a a quote that um, we kind of came up with when I was in college with another um, 
another Aussie guy that was there with me. And based on our lifestyles of what we would try and do is train the body, train the mind, and then punish both in pursuit of a good time. So that's probably <laughs> another one that could potentially lead you a little way off stray. But, um, you know, just kind of in terms of fully living the human experience, I think that one's probably also um, not bad advice, but obviously for young kids, uh, stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, now to rein it back in. Um, <laughs> rumor, rumor has it the European club teams are wanting to take all deductions away from non-EU players so the youth and female point deduction. How do you think this will affect the leagues and international relations? What Did you say that they also want to take away the female deduction? They're said? thinking about taking away all deductions from non-EU players, apparently. That's a rumor according to the question asker. Yeah. And the, and the and the female deduction, did you mention that or was that what did you say? Yeah, both. Yeah. Female. Yeah. Yep. I how do I think it'll affect wheelchair basketball? Yeah. yeah, how do you think it'll affect the leagues basically? I think that I think that the female deduction uh, it it hurts generally speaking male class ones or male low pointers, but generally under two point five players. I think that we have been hurt a lot by that rule. I think that you've got to be among the best to get to get a look in in teams, um, yeah. and it hurts our market value dramatically when. And it hurts the amount we can we can earn as well because if you ask for too much, then a lot of teams will be like, all right, well, never mind. I, I'll just go the other route and pl- go for four bigs and go with a female class one. Yeah. Um, which I mean, it's a hard, and I, I know I'll probably be I'll be crucified for these statements as well in in some groups because it's. But speaking on behalf of male class ones, it's it's made it a lot more difficult. And when you look at it. Like if you're the best in your class, you, you it should be a level playing field. Like the best class ones should be as valuable as the best midpointers, as the best high pointers, and we should all have this the same demand. We, this should be felt for our playing services, and we should earn a similar amount. Like you would you would say because, but it's not that way at the moment. I don't think. And I think it, yeah. I think a, a lot of it has to do with that because I think, and not even maybe the 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 well developed low pointers can are probably good enough to get a look in, and I think we can find teams. But the the ones that are probably even more um, hurt by this by this rule are the developing ones because they're the ones that aren't getting much of an opportunity for that reason because there there's either they're competing against the, the ones that are already quite developed or they're struggling to find a spot on teams or they get a spot on the team, but they're spending a lot of time on the bench. You know, just not getting those, those minutes on the court. Um, the Australian league, for instance, had the, the female rule, the deduction and took it away. And you see, like we also have our own league specifically for females. So it, it works in like justly in that sense. And I think now you see our one point is male low points are developing a lot more because they're they're playing yeah for better or for worse they're, they're on the court and they're getting better and they're getting that opportunity and then they can take that next step and i think maybe that's the reason why as a country we've done a pretty good job of producing one point is where you see other countries on an international level you get to a paralympics and a lot of guys are playing 
a lot of minutes when they haven't had a lot of opportunity in their in their European seasons to do that. Um, yeah. So I think it would it's it's a hard space. I think you would need. It's a shame that there there isn't. Or if there were more, I know GB have their own women's league. The US have their own college women's league, and I think if Spain invested more into having a specific women's league, I think it would be good. And then I think it's if women are good enough to play without a point deduction, which I think someone like Rose certainly would be like, then that's amazing, an amazing feat, and it should be encouraged. Um, so yeah, it's it's a hard space because it's. it's it's not a perfect world and there's going to be somebody that's going to be upset about it, no matter which way you go about it. The junior deduction, I think that needs to be maybe scrapped altogether or at least altered. When you look at someone like Manu, who's, um, who's 37 have, go, and has two yeah, children is getting the junior. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But also like I'll base it back on our Australian league as well. Like we have a junior deduction, but it's only to 20 years of age. And if you've represented your, Australia at a Paralympics or a world champs. Well, I think even if you've gone to a qualifiers, I think once you've played a tournament with the national team, you lose that. So it's only really for the players that are developing. So I think that would be a good rule to apply. Like once you're representing your national team, I don't know whether you need that point deduction to yeah. be competitive because therefore you should be already a developed player, right? Yeah. yeah. And that- also the thing is you're kind of putting that rule in to develop someone with a view to them making your national team. And then it's like, okay, job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's maybe, how the that's how the rule used to be in the GB League way back, but I think they scrapped that probably round about kind of 2010, and they just let everybody play junior points. But it, they let juniors play with points regardless of whether they'd represented the team or not. But it's also not the same level of effect because we weren't buying players in from all over the show, and it wasn't squashing the value of everybody else. But I think yeah. to your to your point about kind of how lows should ideally be seen equally to the most valuable mids or most valuable kind of high pointers, you only have to look at like Spain, for example, and there's what three or four lows who are like actual guys brought in from somewhere on contracts as opposed to hey, like even in Albacete's case, it's like, hey, Franz, the Spanish one who needs somewhere to play, he'll probably come here because we're pretty good. Like that's not a signing in the same sense that them getting even Alejandro or you know Gaz or Lee that those are like big name signings, and then the Fran thing is like hey, he'll probably come here and it'll make the points work. Yeah, yeah, and, and and the guys that are for it to make it worth our while, I guess, to move from the other side of the world, like there should be a higher demand. Like speaking with Sammy White, who's another. Um, Aussie class one who's up and coming. He's, he's been progressing really well. He played in the college league and he's the last couple of years, he's been interested in, in going to Europe and was speaking to a German club. And ultimately they said, they said, look, we're going to, we, we would be keen on you, but we're um, instead we've signed the, like a German class one, like a girl and they're going to run four bigs. And that would basically, they were like, yeah, look, you're decent. We would like to have you, but this is the way we're going to go. And therefore, um, he's out of luck and he stayed in Australia and hasn't pursued an opportunity, which almost certainly would have improved his wheelchair basketball. The hard thing is like, you need for it to be fair. You need a space where female class ones can, can play.
okay, well, then she's the one that's being um, affected. But when it's a, a men's league, ideally, in theory, I guess maybe it's, I don't know whether it's viewed as a mixed league in terms of 50-50 or how it's, how it's viewed, but certainly from my viewpoint, it's viewed as a men's league. And we don't have, if there's not another space where we can play or where they can play, that it, it makes it hard. And I don't know whether they need to revise the, the level of reduction, like one and a half points is a lot. Maybe if it was one point, that's what it used yeah. to be in the Aussie league, or if it was even just half a point, it would yeah. be, you would see less of an, a, a, yeah, a negative effect on, on us. Yeah. That's just speaking out. I feel like a union representative here on behalf of my boys. <laughs> um, I feel like it, 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 it would have a, a super positive effect on, on our facet of the game. And I think it would develop the sport overall because um, we would have to play more and we would get better and you would see a higher standard and there'd be more money invested in it. And that's basically the extent of it. Like you would see more contracts offered to more class ones. Like why are there no American class ones in Europe? There's not one. And I don't know the last yeah. time that there was. Yeah. Like I think no, he um, played here a long time ago. And I don't know if any others have ever played. Like, why is that the case? Like, why am I the only Aussie class one doing it? Like, why is there not more? And as, as there should be the Canadians, why are they not out here? You know, like it's, there should be more demand, I think. Sure. That's an interesting point, man. Yeah. Cool. I we mean, got... it'll be a, a controversial yeah. one, but ultimately it's kind of... No, I think, I think you're right. Like, I, think, I think the points that are coming off are having, like on their own, are having a, an effect on how things work, both in how the Spanish league works and then on how we all look when we go to Euro Cup and absolutely crap the bed. So like something needs to change. And I think scrapping it all is a bit harsh. So I think, as you say, junior rule to Tweaks. 20 female point to one, maybe yeah. might be the move. And that's the thing, like with the one, with the female point off, like, if you're still good enough, you'll play. Like there's enough women's players kicking around the leagues that will still play. Maybe it's just the there's a couple of people that are kind of on the floor to do a very specific job and also get four big on the floor. And like obviously that's a exactly. tactic that worked, yeah. but maybe it's I don't know. Maybe it changes the game and makes it a bit better and makes the sort of one point play a bit more interesting, a bit more expensive, expansive as you say, but. I don't know. I could see them not actually changing anything next season. I don't have a clue. Yeah, I mean, I've also uh, I've heard the junior thing and like the non-European juniors. I've heard that every year since I think I've been in Spain that they're going to take it away and yeah. still hasn't. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed, but I can't see it happening anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. Well, you say your opinions on this will be controversial, but at the very least, now we know why you've been driving so hard to get on the podcast for the last couple yeah. of weeks because you needed <laughs> to get right. this off. Yeah. For yeah, one pointers everywhere. Yeah. We appreciate it. I spoke to, yeah, no worries. I spoke to Abby about it um, when we we're at, you, at uh, King's Cup and I spoke to others about it in the past. Like it's certainly a conversation that, that, that happens. Like he and I are two of the few that are floating around, I guess. And like that, are, you know, like James, you've done a good job of finding a squad in, in Canaries where you could play a lot. And then outside of that, like who else is there and playing and having a yeah. big impact? So, Matchek's about the only one, isn't he? Uh, Burgos. Matchek, yeah. 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 But you, you laughed yeah. when you mentioned Burgos earlier, so maybe he's not legit enough. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he's, yeah, he does some things, God. He, 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 play, he was a lot better this he year than play. I think he was in Italy. Yeah, oh, agreed. Yeah. 
Well, he's got some. He's got some fine British talent around him in Burgos, hasn't he? That's the secret. <laughs> Lee Fryer and Will Bonner, Tweedledum and Tweedledum. Yeah, but watch Fryer is a freak. You guys have got to get around that, mate. He's super raw, and like I love the fact that he's unpredictable and just doesn't know anything about. Like he's just so aggressive and just loves pushing his wheelchair. I think that's probably the best way to describe him. Just loves. I've never seen a guy that just loves pushing a wheelchair so much. Yeah. Like he just absolutely crushes that thing, and it's just awesome to watch. I'm such a big Fryer fan. Yeah, he's I tried to talk about after a game, but he completely blew me off. So <laughs> he, he's yeah, he's 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 a different man altogether. But he's like first team all man if he could put it together. Like. Yeah, just has all that physical talent, but yeah, and he did really well this year. To be fair, they both did all right, and it was good to see because I was worried about the two of them because I didn't think either of them knew how to boil the kettle. Never mind. Yeah, I, th- I think either when you else. when you say we were worried about them, I think that was less about basketball and more about being able to like feed yeah. and clothe themselves, wasn't it? But yeah, anyway, we're, we're deep in the weeds yeah. on this one. Okay, last yeah. question. We'll finish it off. Favorite Spanish city. Uh, I was maybe I yeah probably Madrid. Bilbao is unreal, like beautiful city, epic, and and more of a maybe a later stages of life. Like if you were to raise a family in Spain, I say Bilbao is your spot. Um, good for young people as well, but just a really livable city. It's probably the best way to describe it. But yeah. I spent a summer in Madrid in 2019, I think, and just had a blast. Like had a really really good time. Um, made some really good mates there, and just yeah, Madrid is just an unreal city. Just there's a lot happening. Well, I mean, you're one of the big international cities getting around. It's just, there's everything there. Whatever your interests are, you will be able to satisfy them there. So. Cool. Yannick to a loony on you heard it here first. I've been trying to sell <laughs> myself there for years, but I've never been keen. So no, I've done cool. my best. But, but, you said yeah. earlier you're not going back to Spain, so we'll assume that's not the case. No, definitely not. Okay. Yannick to a loony, you didn't hear it here. <laughs> all right that's all the questions um therefore that's probably the end of the podcast so thanks very much for coming on man this is great this has been right. the longest episode we've done since we've kind of broken out on our own i think so thank you for um putting up with us no worries boys thanks for having me you've killed a couple of hours of my hotel quarantine which i'm stoked with and uh, it's been a good it's been a good chat on um, as i said when i messaged you boys i've enjoyed a couple of the past ones you've done and um happy to be a part of it i think it's a a space within our sport that needs to uh, get more attention. Thanks, and I man. think it's a good sign that our sport's growing, that, that these sorts of things are happening. So awesome work yeah, by well, you guys and, and keep it up. We we kind of spoke about it before you came on and we'll close on this, I guess. But kind of the idea when we set this whole thing up was, you know, it, within the UK at least, kind of the whole wider scene of wheelchair basketball is not really known about for most people who start at just lower level clubs because – there's like 70 plus clubs in the UK and three of them play in Europe consistently. And that's like once a year. So the idea yeah. of this was kind of more to, you know, feed drip, drip feed what was going on in Spain or at internationals to kind of anyone English speaking who'd listen to us. So the fact that we've kind of got a listener in someone like yourself, who's like, effectively you're the people that we're trying to tell the other people about and you're actively listening <laughs> to what we're up to is like that's kind of mind-blowing for us so yeah we really appreciate it man and obviously you're welcome back anytime especially when you have an exclusive to drop about where you're going (laughs) wicked i'll i'll certainly get back in touch boys no problem 
Cool. I appreciate it, man. All, right. All the um, best. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, take it easy. Bye. Peace. No <laughs> See you.